Live Podcast, Episode 1, The Great Impersonation, by E. Phillips Oppenheim. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from a century ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we're going to be exploring these gems from 100 years ago. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss in this podcast are also available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. So, John, what did you think of the book? I thought it was great. I, You know what? Uh, we've had discussions. This is our first episode. I didn't know what we were going to get into as we start diving into some of these books. And I really enjoyed this book probably more than I thought I was going to enjoy a 100-year-old book. Um, before I get too deep into this, though, uh, dear listener, if you haven't read the book, it is an um, espionage book with a mystery wrapped inside of it. So there are going to be some spoilers we're going to discuss uh, near the end of this podcast. Um, if you'd like to read this book, this is a good time to pause. Come back to the podcast. That's the beauty of the internet. You can pause and listen months from now when you get around to reading it. So uh, so spoiler alert there. From there, we can move on. Uh, Mike, I liked this book a lot. Uh, I read it quickly, probably faster than a lot of other books that I've read in the past. Um, we'll talk a little later, but I, it was actually almost hard to nail it down to a genre based on the way we think about books these days is that it wasn't clearly, like I said, a mystery novel and it wasn't clearly an espionage novel. Um, and it had a little bit of a Downton Abbey mixed in, you know, because of just the, the, the time frame and the language used. And so it was, it was a really surprising book and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, um, all the way to the end. The end was surprising and i don't know if i agree with with what happened uh <laughs> but, but 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 they certainly surprised me and if that's the goal of a mystery novel or an espionage novel then 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 they did it so uh so so what do you think well so just kind of yeah reading it for the first time uh one of the things that really stuck out to me was exactly what you described it was tough to pin down at first but it drew you in so quickly so i've got to say uh i loved it i thought it was great um it was really interesting to read it from a perspective historically and i think literary um where you can see so many differences in terms of how people write it and what they wrote about um it did get me really interested i've got to say interestingly harkening back to what you just said about doubt and abby that feel it draws you in. It's like the best episodes of Mad Men and Downton Abbey and all these things. It really draws you into the world. Uh, and it got me more interested both in the history at the time, because I really had to go double check myself and figure out what had already happened uh, at this time based on some of the events he described. Uh, and it made me more interested in the guy himself. You know, how do you write this? How do you come up with information like this and describe it in such vivid detail? You know, is it totally fictional or based on some sort of uh, experience that he had. So uh, I, I liked it and I'm really uh, looking forward to sinking my teeth into this with you. Yeah. yeah and I'd say one other thing before you kind of get into the author notes um, th th that you put together is based on the timeline of this. This was written in 1920, like just after the Great War. And and it takes place in the in the few years leading up to World War One. And, and I think it's interesting looking back 100 years, having a better idea about what took place globally to lead to the great war. And, and this guy talked about things and events that I don't know if we'd consider them to be the triggers of the war. And I don't know if they were actually going on. We have a much better understanding of the various treaties that were in place. Um, this was maybe a little more 
business versus military versus, you know, oh, the Germans just want a world empire. <laughs> and, and, and that's a little different view than I think we understand now about what led to World War I. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but it's definitely an interesting worldview that's very different than you'd have uh, 80 years or 100 years after the war. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so we're going to come back to that. What I do want to do is take a moment. I, I want to fill in our viewers, I'm sorry, our listeners, for uh, some of the details about our author. So E. Phillips Oppenheim was born in 1866. He died in 1946. Uh, he was generally an Englishman. He was a Londonite. Uh, he had a little bit of a fling with the United States for a while. His wife was from the United States. Um, he did not start out as a very successful novelist. He's not one of those people who sort of naturally fell into it. He was always a great writer, um, but moreover, he was a great convincer. So his father actually paid for him to self-publish his first novel. Uh, and as he got into his 20s, he found a sponsor who gave him a job in a leather factory that allowed him to write his book. So essentially the sponsor said, look, I'm going to give you this job, but don't worry too much about the leather. Worry more about the book. Um, this is a man who later on in his life appeared on the cover of Time magazine. He published more than 100 books, uh, including seven in one year alone. Uh, and he composed one in less than three weeks. I think this is really relevant to our discussion tonight because what he was writing about was extremely contemporary to the publishing of the novel. So it isn't like he wrote the novel and then a year and a half later, suddenly everything changed. He was writing it and publishing it in the same time frame that World War I was ending. Um, now, one of the great things about somebody like this is he reminds me a lot of a Michael Crichton, a Tom Clancy, like you and I discussed. More than 30 of his books were made into movies in the 20s and 30s, and dozens of plays were based on his books. So this is a guy who's a bestseller, but also highly regarded. Now, he was very London-centric, very English-centric, like I mentioned, but he had an American wife. Um, one of the things I found most fascinating about him, John, to your point, he viewed the German and Prussian side of the war as the easiest villain's to use. Now, I think a lot of times, even up to the current time, we think about things like the Nazis, you know, or, or the communists. We think about these groups and we say, okay, these are, these are our traditional villains. <clears throat> but this is a man who existed before that, generally. And he drew a lot of his experience from working in England's Ministry of Information as well. So we just round this out. Um, as you mentioned, this took place at the, right at the end of World War I, uh, in the middle of the Russian Revolution. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt just died. Prohibition was taking place in the United States. Uh, this was a, a drastically different world than it had been 10 years prior, but it was also a drastically different world than it would be 10 years after. Now, remember, he passed away in 1946. This book was written in 1920, so it was about 26 years before he passed. Um, great context from him. He has this one quote. He says, I create one more or less interesting personality. Try to think of some dramatic situation." in which he or she might be placed. And I use that as the opening of a nebulous chain of events. That's it. That's his formula. And boy, howdy, does he jump into it. So John, uh, that, that is my summary of the author and, and some of the background to this book. Um, what did you think about the plot? What are some of the, uh, some of the notes you took there? Well, hang on a second. Before you get to that, I want to go back, because you made some pretty amazing comments here like 30 of his novels were made into movies you know and I, I i can't think of an author right now who's had 30 of his books like 30 made into movies you know i mean like i mean stephen king has published a lot and there have been a lot of stephen king movies but i think it's only like a dozen or so that have been made into movies and a couple more made into like tv movies um i mean a hundred books is a lot of books and 30 movies and movies that's a ridiculously successful author by 
any standards. You know, it's also interesting to think about how um, his his father paid for his first novel to help publish. In my mind, I'm like, well, nowadays he would just he'd he'd be an ebook, right? He would just publish <laughs> it on Amazon. You know, and so that's uh that that's pretty amazing. And I am not a literary guy. I'm an engineer by trade and training, but I've never heard of this guy. And he's been on Time Magazine and published a hundred novels and thirty movies. And that's that's what I love about this 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 podcast is I think we're going to uncover things that I should know, people that I should know, books I should have read that I have not read. So uh, so that that that's great, absolutely great. Um. So all right, let's jump into uh, the plot. So uh, people have been asking me, all right, so what are you doing? What's this? You know, you're doing a podcast, John. What's this? book about and i tell them two guys an englishman and a german meet up in africa and they're doppelgangers and the one's really down on his luck the other one is apparently down on his luck for different reasons the german is ordered to um infiltrate the uh the english uh, aristocracy because he looks like uh this this english aristocrat he plans to kill him and take over his life and apparently he does. So he arranges for the guy to be killed. And next thing you know, three months later, the, the Englishman, quote unquote, shows up back at his old house. And uh, he arrives back and he is rich because back then, go to Africa, buy some mines, uh, get lucky and come back wealthy. And that was kind of, a, I guess, a, a common theme or story from, uh, you know, colonizing back then is that you could go off and make, make your fortune other side of the world. And so he does that. Uh, what he didn't know, what what this German, I guess, didn't understand when he took over this Englishman's life is that uh, the Englishman left under rather dubious circumstances. Apparently, he would, <laughs> you know, that's well, well said. <laughs> he shows up. Good news. I'm rich. And, and they're like, oh, welcome back. You know, you're still suspected of murder. <laughs> Oh, that hasn't been closed out. No, we never found the body. Oh, well, let's just hope that doesn't become a critical point. Uh, and so, you know, and, and, and you know, I think it was a very interesting writing of kind of his first day back because he shows up, he meets first person you meet, of course, back then is your mortgage broker as his standard. <laughs> sure. If you're English. <laughs> yeah. Not, not your family, not your friends. You show up and you go to your mortgage broker who apparently was sending your allowance to Africa. And, <laughs> and especially not your wife. <laughs> no, 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 no. Doesn't visit her for a couple of days. So he shows up, meets his mortgage broker, says, I'm rich. Let's pay off the mortgage. And the mortgage broker says, that's great news. Let's go to lunch. And, <laughs> and while he's, while he's at lunch, who does this German bump into, but his Hungarian lover whose husband he killed, you know, and it's just, it's Happens like to me all the time. <laughs> Talk about a small world. You had to meet a meet an English guy in Africa and travel to his home country so you could happen to bump into your um, your Hungarian princess lover. <laughs> and so you know he keeps bumping into people. Um, so, so yeah, and and then later on he also bumps into the the Englishman's cousin, like who we also I, I never understood this, Mike, and, and maybe you can fill me in. Were they just on a weird? cousin flirtatious kind of relationship did they go a lot further than flirtatious and they just use the word cousins in the way like well we're all rich and all sort of related no no so you're kind of my cousin but they're related (laughs) they used cousins in the way that it was used back in the 1920s which is to say they definitely made out a little bit (laughs) they had one steamy night that they allude to yeah yeah because you know so so 
clearly the the Englishman before he left was rather a um, a ladies' man. Clearly a gambler. Clearly an alcoholic. Because yes. they keep referring to when he comes back, you know, the Germans there, and they're like, I don't know if you're him. He used to just knock back the alcohol. <laughs> and you don't knock back the alcohol. Um, and so, so, so clearly he has a different life to live up to. So anyway, so it's a crazy day, meets multiple lovers and his mortgage broker finally heads back to his house with his mortgage broker as one does. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, when he gets back, his, his wife, I guess when the, when the Englishman left England a decade earlier under suspicious circumstances, seeing him covered in blood drove his wife crazy. And she has just uh, been locked in her room for 10 years with a maid because that's how they treat the insane back then. So <laughs> that's, that's a little help you got back then is, well, maybe you should divorce her and move her into town was, was advice that he received from multiple people. <laughs> I feel like that's just uh, the way divorce proceedings go now. <laughs> just you know, we're just going to ship her off to the city, and you can get on with your life. And so, uh, but I guess she promised if he ever slept under the roof again, she'd kill him. But the German, being the German, is like, well, I'm not going to be scared away from my own house. I'll sleep in the room. That's right. And and next thing you know, he wakes up, and there's a woman on top of him with a knife to his throat. <laughs> <laughs> wah wah. But she looks at him and says, you're not my husband, and decides that she's just going to kind of be nice to him. It's a very quick turn. Um, but then she's crazy. And so you don't necessarily think too much about it. I don't know what you thought about that quick turn. Uh, but I guess she almost decided that he's not the same man who left. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And, and so she's willing to kind of see where things go for a couple of days. And so she backs off. Uh, but, you know, that. Abyss, you know, he then proceeds to go about, meets all the locals, um, really ingratiates himself into society very quickly. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of big characters that he meets along the way. There's uh, uh, Mr. Seaman. I don't know if we ever got a, a first name for him, but he is a, uh, a pretend German business partner of this, of this German spy who is always pushing for uh, you know, peace amongst the English and the Germans, while at the same time he's a, a high-ranking official who's trying to uh, work this German into the high society to learn whatever they're going to learn from being in high society. And they're never very clear about what they're going to learn, other than it's good to have someone well-placed. And so, so Mr. Seaman comes over, and the mortgage broker comes over, and they all sleep over, and they all have a good time, and they all just kind of hang around the estate for a couple months. And... Uh, and so that that's kind of how the book proceeds is that uh, he just continues to ingratiate himself. But over time, he fixes his relationship with his wife. I'll say his wife. Uh, he whose name is uh, Rosamund Domini. Uh, he kind of keeps pushing off the crazy Hungarian princess saying it wouldn't be appropriate because uh, that kind of blows my cover to start just going out and sleeping over at some Hungarian princess's house. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> makes it hard to be a German spy. Um, so, <laughs> Again, I've so anyway, found that things proceed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so things, things proceed. Uh, he does a good job. He's well sunk into society. You meet various characters who are either pro or anti-German. There's a whole society who believes Germany is, uh, building up a giant military to take over Europe and that they're, they're, they're so sure the goal of Germany is to roll over Europe and just take it all over. 
And then there's another group of people, partially led by the German spy, uh, Mr. Seaman, who says, no, 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 the Germans want nothing more than money. Let's go capitalism. We're just big fans of, of English business, and we want your money, and you want our money. And so let's all just be friends and get rich together. And uh, and remember, and, this and, is and right so around World War I. Those discussions. So people believed that. <laughs> this is 1913. 1913. And so, uh, so it continues on right up until war breaks out, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of sudden. Well, there it is. That's war. Um, and then there's an ambassador who is pro-peace, and he hands off his memoirs to, to, to the main character, uh, who I haven't said yet. His name is Ever, Ever, Everard Domini. Everard? Everard Domini. Excuse me. Everard Domini. Um, at least that's the name of the persona being used. And uh, he hands off for his manuscripts to him. We have another German spy who gets captured and disappears. And in the end, it turns out that the German spy wasn't the German spy, was actually the Englishman. Like for the last 10 pages. Like, oh, got you all. Ha ha. I pretended to be the German spy, pretending to be myself. And I got all your information. I locked up all your spies and we win. Ha ha ha. And and I didn't know what to think about that <laughs> because it certainly surprised me. I don't know if it surprised you, Mike. Uh, yeah. It surprised oh, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In some of the worst and, and, parts and all of I the could book, think, I think. And all I could think of was, no, 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 no. He's actually the German who's pretending to be the Englishman, who was <laughs> pretending to be the German, pretending to be the Englishman. And he just decided he likes England better because it's the only thing that made sense to me based on the whole story. That or the Englishman was just so good at pretending to be the stiff German spy. So um, that's my real brief kind of plot points there. Uh, but I liked it. You know, the whole writing was really good, and and I followed it along, and it was a, it was a page turner. Um, so so, what do you think, Mike? You know, I, I again, I I really find myself in agreement with what you're looking at. So first off, compliments on the summary because as much as this was a page turner it really went down 20 different paths. You never knew which one was going to come back. Uh, I think right up until the end. So there were numerous characters. In fact, um, so I liked the book on balance. I, I think one of the challenges that I had right off the bat, when you're dropped into the first part of the book, the very introduction, I get it. It makes sense. You've got these two characters meeting. Hey, they resemble each other. One of them is a stoic German officer. One of them's a drunk. Uh, and who among us can't relate to that? But then when you go into meeting with his mortgage broker. You are just thrown right into it. Now, in a way, I liked that. I think what it does is it sort of tickles the brain cells in a way that doesn't happen with a lot of modern fiction. You know, it's I, I find that a lot of modern fiction tends to say, hey, here's the plot. Let me throw it in your face. This one, you had to play a little bit of catch up at first. And you do always have that very subtle question in the back of your head. Is there a twist here? I think we've been conditioned to a twist, but he really pulled it out. You know, so I, I think it gave a lot of strength to it. Um, as I mentioned to you before, one of the things I love most about this book is the guy, this author, just knows how to craft a world in all the best ways. And you can tell that he's he's sort of tasting the world around him. And he's able to describe it in this just such a beautiful way that it makes you almost want to be there. And And I'm just going to Read this one quote that I absolutely loved. So here he is right at the start. He's this drunk guy. Uh, he's in Africa. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he says, uh, 
there are shrubs nearby, he says, mysterious and impenetrable, save for that rough elephant track along which he had traveled, to the broad-bosomed river, blue as the sky above, and to the mountains fading into mist beyond. The face of his host had carried him back into the past. Puzzled reminiscence tugged at the strings of memory. It came to him later on at dinner time when they three, the commandant, the doctor, and himself, sat at a little table arranged just outside the hut that they might catch the faint breeze from the mountains, herald of the swift-falling darkness. Man, that paints a picture. <laughs> so I, I think that probably gave me maybe like 70% of the enjoyment because if you stripped away a lot of that, I think what you have is an interesting book, but not a great book. And, and that is part of what made it so great. Yeah. I would say, you know, knowing that he wrote so many books and I keep thinking of authors I know who've written a lot of books, it seems that there's two ways that authors go. They either write a masterpiece and then spend the rest of their careers trying to recapture the magic in the bottle. Or there are guys who take their craft very seriously and work on it. And this book, I could tell, was written by someone who's been working on their craft for a while. You know, they knew he understands pacing. He understood how to slowly build out a character without just saying, here's a paragraph all about this character. You know, there wasn't it, it's that, that's not how he introduces you to characters. He introduces you to characters through their actions and through their dialogue. And I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. He something that I think he does very well. He does these scene pieces, right? So it's almost like mini acts in a play, where you don't know if they're going to be relevant to the rest of the story. You have a feeling that they will, but a lot of the relevancy simply comes from the characterization. He gives characters time to breathe. Even characters like the uh, crazy predator Austrian princess, uh, who would otherwise be one note characters still comes across in some ways as, if not quite sympathetic, very passionate. And it's passionate in the way that people would have said that in the 1920s, not today. Today, you know, passion is something we throw around. At the time, passion meant you were wholeheartedly into something and no one had better stand in your way. Um, so, so he builds up those characters so well. He does the sets so well. And, you know, John, it's funny. When we think about bestsellers, uh, we had a conversation in our uh, spoiler alert as well for everybody. We have a little uh, bonus information that's out there too that one day you may hear um, where we talked about the difference between these formal languages in books that you and I have studied from history versus what a bestseller would read like. And something that I thought was so great is you go back and you read this and it reads like something totally different than anything I would have thought would have been written at the time because it's, it's a fascinating, energetic read full of vibrant characters. And I think the best comparison to somebody today, for instance, like you said, that builds on their craft is somebody like a Stephen King, you know, where he starts out now that's doing everybody a disservice. Uh, but he starts out as somebody who was a really interesting idea, man, who was able to pull together a lot, stunk at endings for a good long time. But as his craft went on and he really tightened up his phrasing and he really got the plotting down and he really got the characterization, suddenly you've got a book that you simply can't put down. And he never stops. So I think by his own admission, he's always learning and trying to tighten it up. And I think you're right. So by the time uh, this author wrote this book, this was, I don't know if it was like book 50 or book 60. Talk about practice. <laughs> Boy, did he have it. Well, you know, and there are a couple of things because I, and I, we'll talk about this. We might as well talk about it now is that I, I thought this was a very genre bending kind of book is that depending on the chapter I was in, I couldn't tell if I was in a murder mystery 
or if I was in an espionage book or a kind of romantic drama kind of book. And, and, and because of, I guess, my experience of reading mystery novels is I started paying attention to details wondering if they'd be important. And, and, and the author certainly put plenty in there. Like the first time that uh, Everard goes and meets with the old doctor, you know, and he comments on how, oh, I see you've taken up, you know, fishing again, your old habit. And the doctor says, actually, I never fished before now. I only do it because I'm old now. And you're like, oh, that's going to be important. Let me take a note of that one, you know. And and so, so, but he puts those little notes in just to build up the character. He was doing it to pad out, not pad out, that's right, to build up the characters. I was looking for clues because I'm so conditioned to look for clues in mystery novels. Um, but actually some of those things are the reasons that threw me because I was sure because of my reading, there are plenty of clues that he was clearly the German pretending to be the Englishman and that he was just faking it. Instead of, no, he's exactly the Englishman. He just didn't remember from 10 years ago when he was an alcoholic that the doctor didn't fish. Oh, okay. You know, and so so it's, it was very interesting trying to figure out what genre book I was reading sometimes. In the same way that I couldn't figure out who he actually want, which love interest was actually a love interest sometimes. Because was he was he in love with the the English wife or the Hungarian princess? Was he being protective of the English wife? And that's why he seemed to be very caring towards her. Or did he feel that that was just the part he had to play? You know, whereas was he pushing off the, the Hungarian princess because uh, she would ruin the plans or because he just didn't want to deal with her anymore? You know, looking back now, you could say, OK, well, he needs to both save his marriage and push off this false lover. But that's not what I picked up at all during the reading. So I think the author really covered over nicely. I can only see it looking back. And I couldn't see it looking forward. So speaking of themes, one of the things that really stands out to me, and, and again, this is a function of the time as we all understand it, but I think particularly in our society today, this would have to be addressed, uh, is the theme of the extraordinary racism that was on display in this book. Now, one of the, I think one of the challenges of reading a book like this is how do you separate almost the seductive quality of the writing, the fact that you're just drawn into this world from the overt problems that were there, and not just the problems of the characters. This wasn't a characterization of racism. This was also a function of the actual racism of the time working its way in. So there was a, a quote here, uh, similar to what I did before. Some sentences just stood out to me. So one gentleman says, it isn't only my own account, Sir Everard, he said, that I drink your hearty good health. I have your tenants, too, in my mind. They've had a rough time, some of them, and they've stood it like white men. Now, I, I've known a lot of white men. I am a white man. I don't know that I've always stood things well. <laughs> uh, and there, there was another part, too, where uh, it was interesting because it was actually uh, not just racist but a little sexist. Here are they talking about all of these these women that Everard apparently had romanced. And, and someone says to him, can you have learnt to care for anyone else? She muttered, there were no women in Africa. This is Rosamund Dominey, your reputed wife. They tell me she's beautiful. So basically what they're saying is, uh, not only uh, are, are there no uh, people of repute in Africa, not only uh, would you stand something like a white man and not like anybody else, but also there's not even any women over there. Now, I happen to know that's not true. I did a little research. It turns out about half of the people over in Africa are women. 
<laughs> really remarkable. So, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, and, and and I'll say, you know, dear listener, if you haven't read it, it's going to pop up right away, and and it is a, it's clearly a reflection of the times. It's clear reflection of the characters in those times. Um, it's likely an accurate reflection of what a, a an English aristocrat and a German aristocrat who were taking full advantage of all the various uh, uh, natural resources Africa had to offer at the time would have thought about all the locals. It is just, it, it's clear and it's obvious. And looking back, it's clearly wrong. But at the same time, it is a reflection, I think, accurately of what people thought at the time. Um, but, but I think, as, as you say, it's, it's, it's blatant and it's, and it's across a lot of things because it wasn't just racism against uh, Africans. Uh, it was very interesting the different way they, they lay out the English versus the Germans. You know, the English, all they care about are their luxuries and their, their pleasures and their activities, and they care about money. But by God, they just they have zero discipline. Whereas the Germans <laughs> just know how to put all joy aside. They don't care about any joy. They only care about conquering and also money and business, you know, but, but, but they all have discipline and none of them actually are ever sidetracked by anything. And, and both of them all agree that the worst of all are the Hungarians because, because, because <laughs> they're, they're not good for anything other than being passionate. And that, and that just ruins everything. It ruins business. It ruins military. <laughs> Those awful Hungarians are the ones who the English and Germans just really despise, except for as just as as playmates. Other than that, there's no good value to a Hungarian. <laughs> so I mean, really, just the women, because the guys don't even don't, get a call out. <laughs> maybe they have no men in Hungary. The way- <laughs> so John, there there was one, and I actually did get a charge out of this one line uh, where where Domini. Uh, who was the actual Englishman, pretended to be a German spy, uh, pretended to be the Englishman. So he's speaking with one of his handlers, and the handler says, uh, what would happen to him in the event of a war? In the event of his being called upon, he says, speaking about Englishmen, either to fight or do some work. Domini replies, I expect he would do it. He would do it pluckily, wholeheartedly, and badly. <laughs> I, I remember that. I knew that. At the beginning of the book, I, I don't have, I didn't, didn't highlight it, but but basically when, when, when you have the doppelgangers, the German and the Englishman, they're like, we had the basic uh, same upbringing, but there's something lacking in the English upbringing that's there in the German upbringing that allows me to be successful and you to be a layabout drunkard, you know, and it's. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right. So, uh, so, so I, I thought that was very interesting. Just the, the, the themes at the time, the, the, the various racist themes at the time that were not just white versus black, but it was really just a, a nation versus nation, very nationalist view of things. Um, that, that, that I think still colors our world today, but then was just so open and obvious to the point at which they made business decisions based on these stereotypes. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. I, I completely, I totally agree with that. When you, so I've always been fascinated by Otto von Bismarck. He was this uh, Prussian guy, came together. He was the last chancellor that was relatively independent of the Kaiser. And his whole effort had been to ally countries together to try and stave off war because he knew that there were so many tensions that no one was ever going to be successful. Again, coming back to business in some ways, uh, if there weren't these interlocking alliances. So that goes one way or another. It can go one way towards creating peace. But when you have these very strong agitators like the Kaiser, who is a character in this book, uh, you have somebody 
who's going to tear down that system. And the only way you can tear down a system of those sort of alliances, again, this is relatively relevant to today, um, is to make such a national point of saying we are better than you. There's no question about that. And to prove our superiority, we must conquer. There can be no in-between on that. And the book even makes a point of pointing out these folks who were sort of peaceniks, right? Like there's these whole committees of people saying, oh, no, no, it's fine. You know, friends of Germany, friends of England. In fact, one of the main characters uh, was someone who was working hard for peace and couldn't believe that peace wouldn't be the end goal. Well, of course, and the book winks at this, of course, it wasn't the end goal. It wasn't even close to the end goal. It was a pretense so that war could take place. And again, this book was written right at the tail end of the war. But I think that it was an interesting reflection at the time of an author who worked in the Ministry of Information who said, yeah, no, whatever people say out loud, it's really the underlying push of the leaders of those countries uh, and how that spins the world around it. And I mean, man, if you can't find a parallel to today, uh, I I don't know yeah, what to was, tell you. It was really interesting, this back and forth, them talking about how there are, you know, there, there, there are two parties in Germany. There's the pro-business party, and then there's the pro-military party. And they were so sure they were well-balanced. In fact, they were sure that business would win out, that, that military is... Uh, a, a military intervention, a war is just too expensive. It's not in anyone's interest. So surely that would never happen. But as things roll out and because the, the Germans are the obvious villain you know, of the time, you know, it just comes out that, oh, no, no, they, all they wanted was war. They always wanted war. There were way more warriors there than there were uh, businessmen there. And, and, you could, and you could see it in the glee, you know, from the Germans when war broke out. Um, you know, Mr. Uh, Mr. Seaman is all... Thank God, I'm so excited. We're going to drink a bunch of drinks. We're really happy. It's all great. So it was really fascinating, this business versus military view in 1920. You know, and again, I, I come back to this concept that as much as I say the book was winking and we talk about some of these modern themes in there, it just seems like such a more, I hesitate to call it innocent, but certainly more naive time. Um, you know, World War I, uh, how many millions of people died? This was a, a huge war. They called it the Great War at the time. And the book is still kind of making some jokes about it, right? Oh, there's the Kaiser on a train. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, if you think about what happens 15 years later, our modern world has been shaped, I think, by by several things, but certainly chief among them was World War II, the Nazis, uh, the terrible atrocities committed there, and atomic weapons. We have existential threats in a way that the book doesn't understand, I think couldn't understand from their perception. So when you're reading about it, it, it you're right. You're, we're talking about these uh, almost in sort of a jokey way, certainly in much more of a uh, European old style way where it's like, well, yeah, sure. The Germans are going to go to war. Oh, it's going to be business. Oh, we're going to lose. We're going to win. That all went away in, in our history. So reading this, it's, you know, in some ways it's, I won't say it's nice because it was about war, but in some ways it's nice to feel a lack of the weight of the terror of history uh, that was weighing on these people, because you can tell with the flippancy with which some of the characters talk and the, the way that they move back and forth from countries, for instance, which I thought was really interesting, um, that it was very fluid. And it was fluid in a way that you just wouldn't see uh, years on, and certainly not now. Well, and I don't know if that's because as a bestseller page turner kind of novel, not a Clearly not a historic novel, clearly not a, a deep, even historic fiction novel, but just a page turner, 
beach read kind of novel, which I think is what generally he was probably going for. Morge kind of wanted to simplify, you know, what what we know now was an extremely complex geopolitical uh, web of treaties <laughs> and alliances and and just what a mess that Europe was ready to go off. Um, this, you're right. It was nice that it was simple. It's look, the Germans. Uh, some of them want to get rich. Some of them want to conquer us. So let's hope the businessmen win. Ha ha ha. Um, and that that was an easy way to look at it. Uh, clearly, that's not accurate to the way things really worked out. But it. So maybe we call it the Indiana Jones. No, it, you know what? I think I think that that's a great way to look at it. Is that is that it's it's so oversimplified that maybe you need to do that to make the book enjoyable. Maybe that's it, because otherwise it'd be 500 pages discussing geopolitical alliances. Okay, and that's an interesting thing, because when you talk about a page turner, uh, and and I'm curious as we get more into our project here, John, what comprises a page turner? What are the things that make it interesting? Um, This one clearly is a very light touch. It jumps over the top of things. Um, And and I found that, you know, fascinating, but fun. I wonder if that's going to persist for us. I mean, you know, are all bestsellers easy light reads or are there some really in-depth meaty topics that are out there that are still things that everybody wanted to get the yeah, i'll be curious i tend to think that bestsellers are going to be ones that more people want to read and people don't have a whole lot of time to read and they want uh interesting fun short books with a dozen characters in them that's that's my guess going forward uh i will see as we move through this project if, if, I'm, if i'm right but i think that's kind of this one certainly hit on that theme so, John, there, there's one more thing I did want to point out that we we don't really touch on yet, but I learned so much about the names for alcohol. <laughs> so I was reading through, and they kept referring to a bottle of hock, which to me sounds like phlegm, and they would say a bottle of hock with seltzer water. So I went and I looked this up, and uh, it turns out that it's actually uh, German wine. Um, and it's, uh, it's very easily accessible German wine. They just called it Hock, which was short for, it was like Hockenstein or something like that at the time, which is the reason where it came from, but it's actually a Riesling. So uh, I'm going to try that with some seltzer water and see what it tastes so, like. <laughs> Haven't done it yet. I'll come so, back to it. <laughs> so were all these, these aristocrats just drinking white wine spritzers? Is that what you're telling me? They were all just drinking white wine spritzers? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. They were all sorority girls. <laughs> That's no joke. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, the things we learn. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any other final comments? So I I, uh, I I think the last thing I would say is I, I can't wait for the rest of this. The beauty of this language is something that I think really holds us over, and it's it's helping me sort of turn a more critical eye to my emails. <laughs> So lately I've tried, I I thought to myself, you know what, enough of not starting with I or we or you, enough of not using punctuation. Let me try and write my emails just a little bit nicer because if this guy could sell a hundred (laughs) books and knock them out in two or three weeks and become a bestseller, I can take two and a half minutes and write a better email. So, so I'm learning as yeah, as I'm sitting here trying to knock out three pages with Grammarly's help and he's knocking out a novel. Uh, I got to step up my writing game. That just about wraps up for tonight. Join us next month when we review Mary Marie, a link to that book, as well as this book, as well as our contact information will be in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. And to the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. 
and most especially to the Gutenberg Project. Until next month. Thank you, and good night. Thank you.